Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers making our digital world greener, one bite at a time. I'm your host, Gail Duez, and I invite you to meet a wide range of guests working in the tech industry to help you better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration to positively impact our digital world. If you like the podcast, please rate it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. As we discussed two weeks ago, design is a crucial step to enable truly sustainable digital products and services. Having the lowest possible carbon-intensive electricity powering your hosting is great, but it's even better to have the lowest possible electricity consumption from the start. As the expression goes, a good watt is a negawatt. And to achieve this, we need sustainable designers taking into account all the environmental impacts of a product and beyond. For instance, Jim Christie coined the eight horizons of sustainable UX, but we'll come back to this point later. So, in this second episode dedicated to sustainable design, we go to Chicago and meet a legend. And to meet a legend, we need a fairy tale. So, here it is. Once upon a time, there was a designer named Tim who was traveling the unwelcoming land of Mordor, Inc. back in the 90s. It was a narrow-minded place where the short-term financial bottom line was the only ring of power. Finding all web professionals, bringing them, and in the darkness, binding them. Riding his bike, an amazing low-tech tool much mocked in the olden days, he became a digital sustainability advocate and he experienced the loneliness of a trailblazer. To fight it off, he regrouped with other trailblazers like Pete Markiewicz, James Christie, or Chris Adams, to name just a few, in an informal fellowship of the digital sustainability ring. Eventually, Tim built his own castle when he founded Mighty Byte in 1998, helping mission-driven organizations amplify their impact. In 2016, he issued a beacon-like warning, just like those in Gondor to rally responsible technologists in the US and beyond. This beacon was a book, Designing for Sustainability, a guide to building greener digital products and services, published by O'Reilly Media. Excuse me, sir, is it the end of the story? Not at all. But we will have the chance to hear the following chapters from the hero himself. Welcome, Tim. Thanks a lot for joining Green.io today. Thanks so much. And uh, that is an awesome and amazing intro. Uh, thank you for, for doing it. I laughed when I read it, and it's even better hearing you recite it. You're more than welcome. But what did I miss in my fairy tale, actually, about you? I think that, I mean, obviously, I'm 56 years old, so I've had a lot of time. I've been in the digital space for, you know, since the early 90s. You know, there's probably a lot that was missed, but probably not a lot that's relevant to this conversation. I did just do a climate ride last weekend. You mentioned cycling, and I do love to ride my bike. And the ride that I did, the Green Fondo in in Western New York, raised $300,000 for environmental charities in the United States. And so that is one thing that I really like to do. I try to do at least one of those each year. And a climate ride is very near and dear to my heart, as are some of the other nonprofits that we work with, like the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Really big, big fan of, you know, combining cycling and advocacy, so to speak. That's a great mix. Yeah, I think so. So it seems that sustainability in you, you go the long way. But how did you become interested in sustainability? 
at least sustainability of our digital sector in the first place. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've I've always I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, so I w had lots of ample access to nature as a kid, and so I've always really been, you know, an environmentalist in, in my heart and soul. And so when the opportunity to certify as a B Corp, my company to certify as a B Corp in 2011 came along, you know, that's not only an environmental certification; it, it focuses on social and governance issues as well. And so, you know, take that kind of lifelong passion for nature and conservation in the environment and trying to figure out how to apply that to my business. That's what we did when we certified as a B Corp in 2011 and it was a really eye-opening experience. If you don't know what B Corp certification is, it's a it's a rigorous certification for businesses to help align your business practices with stakeholder needs and, and stakeholders are defined as community and environment and customers, workers, you know, all the stakeholders that you kind of think of as a business and you know that you that your organization touches on. And so, you know, we're a digital agency. We went through the certification process in 2011. We build digital products and services for clients. So as we went through that process, we started thinking, well, how does this apply? How does the idea of a sustainable, environmentally friendly business apply to the process of digital? And right around the same time, we were starting to read reports about the massive environmental impact of the internet. And we thought, well, that's the thing that we build for a living. So what should we do? And so as a company, we kind of put our heads together and came up with, you know, we wrote a sustainable product manifesto. We just really rethunk our digital processes so that we could, you know, kind of put sustainability at the heart of them. I mean, I think we were one of the early companies and early agencies, at least in the digital space, to do that. And so, you know, we we applied that to adding a lot of content to our blog, started working on how we were reducing our carbon footprint as a company and telling that story via our blog. Then we, in 2013, we launched a free tool called Eco greater, which is still around today, and we actually just gave it a redesign last week. And these things kind of then in, turned into a TEDx talk, speaking engagements, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, you know, etc. So it really kind of just snowballed, essentially, from, you know, thinking about how we could redesign our own practices as a business into helping others do the same. And the B Corp certification was the Kickstarter. Yeah, I think, you know, it was. We had gone through a, a different environmental a certification prior to becoming a B Corp, and it was more like an office certification. So it was about putting in low flush toilets and LED lighting and, and that kind of stuff. Whereas the B Corp certification was much more rigorous and much more kind of, as they say, triple bottom line, you know, where, where you're focusing not just on environmental impact, but also social and economic as well. Okay. And Tim, I know in my sound counterintuitive to our listeners, but you haven't talked that much about design these last few years. You focus more and more on promoting the B Corp movement, as you just did, <laughs> as well as the CDR concept. But on the other end, you are still an O'Reilly author in sustainable design, and that means something. So I'd like us to split our discussion in two. We will take the time to talk at length about B Corp and CDR, But let's start first with sustainable design. And for this first part, to be both efficient and fun, what about a little game? I'd like us to do a quiz together. The idea is to highlight where we are, but also the past we have already covered thanks to more and more technologists behaving responsibly. So I have 10 questions related to your book and the articles you wrote afterwards, and you have two minutes to answer each of them. So be brutally honest. Are you in? I'm in. Yeah, well, two minutes, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. For every question, you have two minutes to answer. In chapter right. three of your book, 
you describe an almost comic five years journey to find the perfect green host, a tale of green hosting woe. What about green hosting today? Is it still a struggle? Yeah, I think, you know, to answer this in two minutes, I think it is, and the struggle is based on the fact that the renewable energy sector is rapidly evolving. And so, you know, it's up to all of us to kind of keep up to tabs on what's going on with all of it. As a small company, we wanted to support other small businesses. We wanted to support other B Corps and stuff like that. So we wanted to find a good, small, green hosting company. Turns out that wasn't easy. And it took us, as you noted, five five plus years. We tried a whole bunch of different small hosting part providers. And, and what we found is that, you know, what they had in a commitment to renewable energy, they sometimes lacked in customer service and support and uptime and security. And so we wanted to find a one partner that would really, you know, help with all of that stuff. At one point when working with one of those smaller partners, we had you know, well, all of our websites that we're, we're hosting for clients go down in a single day. And so like we imagine having all of your clients calling on a single day saying, hey, this is broken and you need to fix it. It was pretty stressful. So we ended up going with a, a company that housed their solution atop Google Cloud Platform. At the time, Google was pretty far ahead of other big tech companies in terms of their commitment to renewable energy. And so the partner that we chose checked all the boxes in terms of renewable energy, but also in terms of security, uptime and customer service and stuff like that. Well, they weren't the small teeny company that we really initially wanted to work with, it was ultimately the best service for our needs. And so, you know, that was the mid to 2010s. We've been working with them since. But, you know, the renewable energy landscape is much more complicated now than it was back then to get back to your initial question about the struggle. Yeah, got it. A fair trade-off. Okay, question number two. In 2016, you stated that CO2 emitted by the internet was mostly from data centers, with streaming playing a big role too. What will be your position today? We have more information. I think, you know, when I was writing Designing for Sustainability, there was very little publicly available research on the topic, at least that I was aware of. I did scour the internet. I scoured research portals and all that kind of stuff to find information, but there was a lot of gaps in the knowledge. You know, I had devoted an entire a chapter of Designing for Sustainability to how difficult it was to estimate digital emissions from a product like a website. So I think that now I would say not just data centers, but also network traffic and consumer and devices and You know, there's a lot of touch points in the entire ecosystem that are all, you know, the internet uses, requires electricity to run. And so there are emissions coming from all of it, especially since so much of it is still, to this day, powered by fossil fuels. Last year, we collaborated with the Whole Grain Digital, the Green Web Foundation, and a few others to kind of review all the academic research on digital carbon calculation so that we could include estimates in EcoGrader, but then also to make sure that the estimates, carbon calculation estimates in EcoGrader and EcoPay and website carbon were all kind of the same or very, very similar because when you get wildly different answers from all of these tools, it sends a pretty confusing message. And so we wanted to make sure that there was parity around that. And so we took and made some assumptions around, like I said, network traffic and, and data centers and consumer end devices and stuff like that to come up with a general estimation formula for estimating emissions from digital products. Now, it's you know not meant to be a full replacement for a life cycle assessment. It's not the be-all, end-all resource for digital carbon calculation. We admit this fully when we were putting the methodology together that you know we welcome feedback, that things are going to change, and there's probably new resources that are going to come out that are going to change this methodology that we put together. But you know we did it, and, and we put it out there publicly and openly in the hopes to get feedback. And we've already updated it four or five times since you know putting it out there initially or last late last year. Yeah, but that's true that with a big 
rise in smartphone usages and all these other electronic devices that the share of the electricity being consumed by data centers has actually shrinking compared to other devices. And they're getting more efficient and they're powering their servers with renewable energy. So there's, yeah, there's a whole, It's like I said earlier, it's a complicated landscape. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's go for question number three. In the first chapter, you dedicated, actually it connects pretty well with what we've just said. In the first chapter, you dedicated some space to Internet of Things with, I would say, mixed feelings, trying to balance between its potential positive impact to decrease wasteful behaviors and the huge negative environmental footprint of all these devices. How would you assess today the potential of IoT, for instance, to boost the circular economy? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really valid question and we should be all thinking about that now. You know, everything that we build requires electricity, those of us who are in digital. And so constantly thinking about how to balance value versus impact on these things is really important. And and for those of us in the digital sustainability space, it's really easy to get caught up in obsessing over every little performance issue in the name of reducing digital emissions. And while that's really important, it's also not the only thing. You know, if you think about the internet and the greater, bigger picture of the internet, there There's a lot of privacy issues, there's a lot of accessibility issues, like all these things kind of go hand in hand with the sustainability issues and stuff. And so we really need to be thinking about all of them, especially as we look at emerging technologies like AI and blockchain and and IoT, et cetera. And so, you know, thinking about how do these things advance sustainable development goals, but then how do we also, as we're advancing those sustainable development goals, how do we also make sure that the impact of these things is positive and lightweight in terms of emissions and stuff like that. The UN Environment Program earlier this year put out a CODES action plan, the Coalition for Digital Environmental Sustainability, and they asked for three shifts to happen. One was to kind of create the enabling conditions to align vision, values, and objectives in the digital age with sustainable development, something that we haven't really done a good job at so far, collectively as an industry. The next is to mitigate negative impacts. So, you know, committing to sustainable digitalization. So that's kind of what we're talking about, reducing emissions and reducing the social and environmental impacts of digital technology. And then the third is to accelerate innovation. And I think this is kind of touches right in the main crux of what you're talking about with IoT, advancing investments in digitalization for sustainability so that we can accelerate and deploy sustainability-driven products, services, et cetera. And I think, you know, with all of these things in that codes action plan, it's a really good, clear roadmap for how how you can use things like IoT to advance the circular economy itself. Hmm. Yeah, it makes total sense. The fourth one will be an easier one. To put it mildly, AWS didn't have a clean sustainability record in your book. Is it still the case six years later? Yeah, I think it is easy for me because we made an active case not to work with Amazon Web Services. You know, at the time that we were doing that five-year journey I mentioned earlier, looking for a good green host, they were not getting good marks at all. In fact, they got not only bad marks for their commitments to renewable energy, but then also bad marks for accountability and transparency and stuff. And so we just walked away from them. We were like, we don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to support that kind of behavior in our supply chain. And so, you know, I've heard that AWS has gotten better and that they have made bigger commitments to renewable energy and such, but I, I can't really make any kind of judgment call on that myself because, you know, we haven't, we haven't used them and, and have never worked with them. She's very wise. <laughs> yeah, I think the more important issue here is that companies need to act with transparency and accountability in all of their business operations. So, you know, that wasn't the case at AWS, and I don't think it still is. Most large multinational companies are in the same boat, for that matter. And so we want to make sure that we're aligning ourselves with organizations who care for accountability, transparency, sustainability, etc. 
Okay, uh, let's go hands-on now. You dedicated a significant part to lifecycle assessment in your first chapter, especially the virtual LCA framework created by Peak Markiewicz. How many virtual LCA have Mighty Bytes performed since uh, 2016? And could you provide any feedback on the framework? Yeah, I'd love to say that we've done a ton of them and that it's a kind of a core part of our process. But the reality is that most of our clients don't understand what an LCA is, especially one as, as, as for digital. And, and it's not really on their radar. Like most of our clients don't even understand what a digital footprint is, or, or if they do, they have just a very cursory knowledge of what it is. And so getting them to pay for a service related to this, like an LCA, which is complicated and takes a lot of time, is a challenge. You know, we do what we can to educate them. We have an education impact business model as part of our company, so we dedicate resources to providing and putting educational content out there in the world. But many of our clients, you know, they're either not interested, it's not on their radar, or if they're smaller, they don't have the resources to invest in something like an LCA. And so maybe something like an EcoGrader tool at least will help them understand what the issues are and, and what are things that they might be able to do. We did just work with a large university here in the Chicagoland area to help them kind of measure their digital footprint of their core website. They're a larger organization, so that they've got hundreds of individual departmental and, and school and college-based websites and stuff. And so we started the process of, of using one of those websites and saying, hey, this is the environmental impact or potential environmental impact of that. It's not a full LCA, but it is a step in the right direction. And it's, you know, one of the first clients of ours that, that really expressed an interest in this. They're in the process of undergoing a redesign of their full of all of their sites of, uh, across the university. So for us to be able to do this and say, this is your baseline, here's where you're at right now. Now you need to move forward and, and think about how to improve this. It's a really good and useful tool for them so that because they have a baseline now and so that when they're identifying specific tools like a content management system and you know page designs and page weights and stuff like that, they're able to actually say, well, this is the baseline of where we're at and we just want to make sure that we improve from here. So, and connected to what you've just said about the slow rate of adoptions, let's talk about standards. In 2016, you advocated for them despite their slow adoption. And with a small number of web professionals, you started a worldwide web consortium, so W3C community group. It is dedicated to sustainable web design, which I had the pleasure to join last month. What happened these last seven years regarding standards? Yeah, actually, it's 2013 when we started this, so it's even been more than seven years. The World Wide Web Consortium reached out, and there's someone I know here in Chicago that's part of their team, and said, hey, we're starting these community groups. They're not necessarily standards defining groups, but they're groups to talk about issues related to what web standards could be. So initially, the W3C community group was really about, you know, professionals sharing ideas and sharing resources. And so for many years, that community group just was about people sharing links and resources that they had found that may or may not change your thinking about, you know, how you're thinking about sustainability for digital. Since the pandemic, though, awareness of digital and the environmental impact of digital has really grown. In fact, it's, it's kind of exploded since the pandemic, since we're all now chained to our computers every day, all day, and working from home and all that kind of stuff. We've seen a rise in the membership of this group. And, and earlier this year, I mentioned the digital calculation, the emissions calculation project that we worked on with Whole Grain Digital and the Green Web Foundation. Once we finished that, we kind of said, well, now what? And, and one of the things was, well, we should start thinking about how this applies to legislation and regulation and standards. You know, the W3C has been, you know, widely renowned for, for their accessibility guidelines. That's kind of what they're known for. And so we thought, well, 
that community group that we started so many years back could actually be a good place to, to be a stepping stone to actually getting to a place where we have sustainability and environmental standards for the internet. And so, you know, we're just focusing on websites and, and digital products and services as part of our group, but there's another sustainability group within the W3C, and I, and I do think that there's going to be an, a movement towards, you know, getting actual standards. It's a long way off in the U.S. I know over in Europe you have a lot more standards around right to repair and, you know, a, a bunch of related things. We're still fledgling here in the U.S., um, but it's a good step in the right direction. And so we're pushing forward and build as much of a coalition in this community group as we can with as many diverse participants and, and perspectives as we can. You know, we can't just make standards based on any one group's, you know, thought or, or ideas. And so we want to really create a good, diverse, sustainable design group that we can in turn use to inform whatever these standards might end up being. Cool. And you mentioned regulation, which is fortunate because that was my seventh question. There was no mention of state regulation in your book. And so, you know, in Europe, we see quite a lot of momentum being impulsed by the European Parliament, as well as some local ones, to fight planned obsolescence, to increase product warranty. You mentioned also a right to repair. Even, you know, the European Parliament standardized charges with USB-C. So what do you think about it, regulation? Do, do we also need some kind of global green certification for ICT, as advocated by Mike Grifford from Civic Action? You know, I'm, I'm all for that. I think it's wild rat west right now. We're really at the kind of bleeding edge of what's going on right now with all of this stuff. And it's very exciting to see a lot of people jumping onto it and, and getting excited about digital sustainability. There's potential for misinformation. There's opportunity for things to go in all, any number of different directions, which is good. But also, you know, if you're talking about getting standards going, there has to be consensus around certain things. And I, and I do believe there should be regulation around these things. Digital sustainability is not on a political radar here in the U.S. We can barely get a clean energy bill passed, which is kind of frustrating. But that being said, you know, data privacy, right to repair, those things are on the books in several U.S. states. So it is possible we could see similar bills related to renewable energy and specific to digital down the line. You know, we live in the world of big tech here in the United States. And so the big tech companies often spend lots of money lobbying politicians for laws to work in their favor. So it's a complicated scenario. I do think we need regulation, but getting it is not an easy task in the United States, at least. As far as certifications go, I think that there should be some, some green certifications. I've been working on a couple of syllabus for digital sustainability class. You know, one of them covers sustainable web design, similar to the W3C community group. Another one is more like operationalizing. You mentioned earlier that I don't talk about design that much. I actually do talk about design a lot, but it's really more in the, the name of organization design than it is specific to digital. So many of these decisions are made by business leaders who don't have the right tools at their disposal to make good and more sustainable and responsible and ethical decisions when it comes to digital. And so, you know, I do think that there's, it's really important to talk to them about the importance of design and, and what that can do for their organization. And okay, I'm going to take a joker here. And let's say this is a question 7B, because what you mentioned about, I'm cheating on with my own rules, that's how bad it is. But you mentioned something very interesting about 
the fact that in the US, some states are pushing for more regulation. And for instance, we can mention New York State recently passed a bill for the right to repair. But how does it work in the US for the, the non-US listeners? Will it help to have like, let's say, California, Michigan and, and New York having already passed some bills to increase digital product warranty, for instance? Or will it create a bit of a nightmare when it comes to red tape and regulation and that will stop everything? How do you see it evolve? You know, I think it's a good question and it's not, not a simple answer. I think there's a certain amount of red tape that comes along with any regulation, whether it's digital specific or not. We have a lot of the politicians in the United States, they're woefully behind in their education on digital. And so, you know, helping them understand what some of the issues are, especially some of these emerging issues around the emerging technologies like IoT that you mentioned earlier and stuff, you know, that's not on a lot of politicians' radar. So helping them understand what it is, is going to help cut down that red tape. In terms of how it works, I've gone and lobbied politicians myself in Washington, D.C. many times on behalf of climate and, and sustainability and stuff. It's a good and useful process that anyone can go through. And as an American, that is a really rewarding thing to go and actually you know talk to politicians and, and hope that, that your conversation is going to actually help educate them on some of these issues. But the process in a wildly split democracy like we have is not easy as much as you can do on the education side, there's still the process of drafting a bill and getting that bill passed and kind of the contention that happens in, in the political process here in the United States. So it's a frustrating scenario for sure, especially if you're a citizen of this country. However, you know, as you noted, you know, California, New York, etc., have made progress and some states do made, make progress on these things. And, you know, when people see that they work and that they actually make change happen, there tends to be that lowers the barrier to entry for other states to consider the same. Okay. Thanks a lot for the highlights. Actually, I'm realizing that the next three questions, I should have regrouped them with uh, earlier ones, but th that's how it is because they're more focused on design and they're pretty short. Like, question number eight is about page weight budget. You know, you, you talked about page weight budget several times in your book. Tom Greenwood also wrote an article about it a couple of years ago. He mentioned it in his book as well, but on the ground. Is it a tool that you use often at Mighty Bytes? I wrote a blog post about page weight budgets back in 2018, and you know, I'm definitely an advocate for them. I think they're really smart. You know, my understanding or my experience with talking to clients about them is page weight budgets are fine and all as long as the client can get what they want. You know, there becomes a kind of natural tension there because they're talking about throwing videos and big hero images and all of these elements onto a page, and you're meanwhile saying, we need to rein this in, we need to pull it back, it's not, the page isn't going to load fast enough and stuff like that. So, you know, we typically outline the concept to our clients up front and say, hey, we really should shoot for this. Our goal is to make every page that we design for our clients and help our clients understand the importance of performance and keeping page weight down. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are super strict about like, you know, we absolutely cannot go over X amount of kilobytes per page. The HTTP archive does a web almanac every year and this year, for the first time ever, they included a chapter on sustainability, which is really exciting because it's the first time a major publication like this that talks about the state of how the web is built is including sustainability as part of the game and part of the conversation. That chapter advocates for a page weight, a targeting a page weight budget of 500 kilobytes and an absolute maximum of one megabyte per page. And yet, you know, the average web page is still well over two megabytes. And so, you know, 
there's a big gap between what we should be doing and what we actually are doing. And so there's a long way to go. But I think that, you know, there is increased knowledge of this and an increased kind of awareness of this issue. And so hopefully there we're going to see more improvement over time on all of this. And in our case, educating our clients around this helps them understand why, no, they can't put this, they need to optimize their images. They can't put this big video on their homepage, et cetera. You know, and on the flip side of that, from an SEO perspective, you know, Google prioritizes lengthy, detailed tutorials and how-to articles and search results. And many of our clients, you know, SEO is part of their, their digital marketing goals. And so they want to make sure that they're ranking really well. And so if you've got Google saying, hey, your 3,500 word blog post with 10 images in it is going to perform better than, you know, a small, you know, 1,200 word post with two images, you're talking about, you know, your marketing strategy being actually at odds with the climate strategy, if they have a climate strategy. And so there is a natural tension there between page weight and performance and also meeting business goals and user needs. Hmm, fair enough, fair enough. And let's keep talking about sustainable design. To which extent would you still emphasize today how the mobile-first approach and progressive enhancements are important. Do you, do you think the battle has been won on these two aspects? I, I am still amazed at how many digital products and services still don't have a really good, useful mobile user experience, or even just across devices and platforms. It's definitely a better scenario than it was, you know, say 10 years ago or even five years ago. Progress has been made, but there's still, you know, people make poor design choices that really frustrate users and then they kind of cast their businesses in a bad light. What ultimately happens a lot of time in our case and in an agency smaller than ours, project budgets sometimes force designers to make choices. You know, they have to choose between multiple mediocre solutions. So in other words, it should never be you can have accessibility or you can have a mobile optimized experience. It should always be both. However, many client expectations is that their website should have a low cost and should be turned around in a very short period of time. And sometimes this forces designers and web teams to choose between, you know, bad choices or, or take turning down the work altogether because the budget isn't adequate enough. I mean, I would say when we started turning down work because of budget misalignment, that really made a major shift in our agency. But, you know, there's not a lot of agencies that will do that. And, and, there, and there's always another agency that's willing to pick up that project for half the price or whatever. And, and then they cut corners and they release a bad solution. And that's how we get the Internet being in the place where it's at. Because, you know, designers and developers are the ones building it. Clients are the ones paying for it. And we ultimately end up with kind of shoddy, half-baked digital solutions, which is, you know, not optimal. Hmm. Yeah, fair point, fair point. And my last question will be quite the same, but regarding agile and lean methodology, because you made quite a case for both of them as a way to avoid waste and promote more sustainable design in your book. Would you still emphasize uh, this point today? Do you believe agile has won the battle now? I'm still a fan. However, I, I say that with a caveat. Agile has definitely expanded, you know, and, and many more organizations use it. And it's, I believe it's a good approach. It's good for efficiently developing digital products and services, but it also has some serious pitfalls. You know, many companies call themselves agile without properly following the principles. They follow this idea of speed to delivery. However, oftentimes speed to delivery and sprinting to get to the end leads to ineffectual poor code that needs to be refactored and and you know they don't go 
back and refactor that code. And so lots of organizations will release something and instead of it being just a draft or just kind of something to test out a concept, it becomes production code and that accrues technical debt over time. And ultimately those things become slow, they become bloated, they don't really work very well, they provide a really frustrating user experience, et cetera. And the flip side of that, as an agency owner, it's also really challenging to shoehorn kind of capital A Agile, the very standard Agile processes into an agency model. And that's how many digital products and services are built. You know, companies hire agencies to build them. They also want to know right up front how much a project is going to cost and how long it's going to take. And that can be at odds with Agile's kind of inherent flexibility. So I, you know, I know there are workarounds for this. Most agencies, myself included, call their process Agile-ish and they're not as rigorous maybe as they could be. I don't know that a lot of agencies that are really, really super rigorous in the official framework of capital A Agile without making some, you know, kind of internal concessions. Fair point. Team, actually, I have an 11th question and you already touched upon it a bit. This could be seen as a lowball, but I promise you it's not. It's just that in Europe, it's a bit of a debate at the moment, an interesting debate, not, not a stupid one. And it relates to website carbon calculated. You already talked a bit about EcoGrader. In your book, you dedicated a full chapter to this adventure. But what happened is that these last couple of years, several thought leaders in digital sustainability field, like uh, David Mitten in the UK or Gauthier Roussin in France, for instance, they, they have raised serious concerns about the flaws in their methodology. In full disclosure, this is something that you've mentioned already in your book and that you even started to mention a bit earlier in the show. And I also interviewed someone quite on the opposite side, I would say, on the other hand, because I recently spoke to James Christie to prepare our interview, who told me he stopped caring at all <laughs> for two main reasons, which are, quoting him word for word, whatever the score is, less bytes is always better. And it is an easy sale because data efficient sites have many other benefits to users and businesses. Well, that was reason number one. Reason number two, I decided to worry less about the calculations and more about what we use the internet for. So you already started to discuss a bit about it, the, the need to be open and transparent regarding the methodology, but where do you stand today in this carbon calculator debate, if I could name it that way? Sure. You know, we've invested a, a ton of time, money, and energy into upgrading EcoGrader in the last couple of years. So obviously, I think there's some value to it. You know, I, you know, I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't if I didn't think there was some value to you know, finding it out. Um, however, I, I think that there's a really important distinction here. Tools like EcoGrader and Website Carbon are meant for people who don't understand this topic really well. I understand the concern that like, oh, you know, if if I don't understand it, and then suddenly I see my grades get, you know, my website's getting a crappy score. You know, the idea is to educate and inform and hopefully take action. I think you're right, the methodologies for EcoGrader as well as Website Carbon has been kind of developed out in the open. You know, we've been very clear about it. It's not meant to be the be all end all. It is changing over time. As we learn new information, we tweak it and adjust it and stuff like that. And for EcoGrader, we want the tool to be as easy to understand and actionable as possible. And so we put a lot of effort into making it educational, to making it something that people can look at and be like, ah, okay, that's an, a, a real clear path that I can take to making a difference. Um, you know, it's again, not meant to be a, a replacement for a full life cycle assessment, but most of the people who use these tools wouldn't have the skills to do a full life cycle assessment anyway. You know, the people who have been doing digital sustainability for a long time probably do, and they probably can do that for their clients. However, someone using EcoGrader and seeing, oh, you know, 
my big website that runs slowly on mobile devices is really causing problems and that there's an actual environmental impact to that, you know, that's a light bulb for a lot of people still here in 2022. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're creating something that is useful for that group of people. I think it's completely valid to criticize the methodology and to criticize what's going on. However, by the same token, climate change is happening now. We don't have the luxury of saying, okay, let's spend a few years working on this research and making sure that we're getting it right. We can't split hairs over whose data or methods are more accurate. We want to make sure that you know we're moving towards solutions right away. And so from my perspective, anything that helps move us towards that, and I include website carbon, eco-grader, eco-ping, et cetera, towards that is a good thing. I think that's a really good thing. It's, again, not meant to be a replacement for an LCA, but I think that these are education awareness tools to help people better understand some of the issues. And so to me, that's a good thing. That's funny because on a different topic, but related, obviously. We had this discussion last week with Anne Fabry and uh, Tom Jarrett about a post. Thorsten Jonas uh, wrote saying, you know, when I enter a room to give a conference on sustainable UX or related topics, I'm always like, okay, they're going to get bored. It's obvious they know everything. And at the end of the conference, I'm always stunned by how many people come back to me and say, wow, I've never heard about this before. That's a opening. <laughs> Thanks a lot for bringing up that topic, etc., etc." And he's, he's got a point. He asked the question in the Slack workspace. And I think he's got a point with, we tend the minute we start paying attention to digital sustainability to read a lot of stuff, reach out, you know, a lot of people, and we build quite a good level of knowledge pretty fast. But on the other end, it's still completely cryptic for most of our fellow workers. And, and especially business leaders, which I know is going to get into section two of our interview, but like business leaders are really, really challenged by this. Oh my God, Tim, you're the perfect, <laughs> you are the perfect guest because... <laughs> Let's go for, I mean, you, you've done a remarkable job. I didn't want not to talk about sustainable design, but I know this is what you are, that what you are really into today is like sustainable organization, as you mentioned earlier, and also all this involvement around the B Corp and CDS. So, you know, quite often I ask my guests a challenging question You go about the why, the purpose. The question is, did you find yourself in situations where making tech greener was not enough, no matter how reduced and offset the scope three of your client's operation were, et cetera, et cetera. But wait, let's be honest with you. I don't need to ask you this question. This issue has already mentioned in your book, quoting you here word for word, mission statement and core values affect digital sustainability. That's it, period. And it is at the heart of your involvement in the B Corp movement and the CDR. So now the floor is yours. Could you tell us more about it? Do you believe sustainable design is enough to green our digital world? And obviously you mentioned that, no, it was not enough. And that's also a question of how business are run. So please let us know what you are into at the moment. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, sustainable design can be a really broad topic. It, it can be digital design. It can be print design. It can be organization design. It can mean that, you know, there's a lot of design disciplines that can kind of fall under sustainability. And so I've kind of evolved my thinking a little bit for a few different reasons. One, Mighty Bytes clients, my company's clients are purpose-driven organizations, B Corps, nonprofits, social enterprises, etc. They're interested in making a difference, but a lot of this stuff is kind of cryptic to them. However, 
they don't really want to get into the details of whether or not SVG over CSS sprites is, you know, I mean, they don't want to go down that rabbit hole. They want to know that that rabbit hole is being taken care of. They, they really want to know the high-level stuff. And this is actually one of the main reasons we designed EcoGrader like we did. You can look at an EcoGrader report and very quickly understand where the issues are related to your website on and sustainability. But you can also drill down and, and figure out all the nuances and stuff. It's the business leaders that are making the decisions to fund a lot of this stuff. And so the projects are not going to get off the ground if designers aren't on the C-suite team or if the business leaders don't understand sustainable design. And so, well, I say sustainable design is you know a great tool to green our digital world. It has to be embraced by by a much broader group of stakeholders. And business leaders are really Mighty Bytes target market, you know, and organizational leaders, people in, in heading up marketing and communications and that kind of stuff. Those are really who we're trying to talk to. And so, you know, we have to temper the message without getting into the weeds of the kind of technology and the specific design and development tactics. They don't necessarily need to or want to know about that. Um, what they do want to understand is, is how is this going to impact my business and what my organization does better. And so because of this, I started focusing, you know, long around, I want to say 2017, 2018, a lot of my writing and a lot of our work and presentation work on more, you know, business-related things and business decision-related things. And so we, I was approached in 2021 by a bunch of researchers, most of whom were from Europe, on defining a clear definition of corporate digital responsibility. So corporate social responsibility has been around since the 1950s. There has been this kind of, you know, push towards creating things like an 18th sustainable development goal with the UN that is specifically focused on digital. Really the idea is that like, how do we create more ethical, responsible, and sustainable digital practices and processes within organization? Well, designers can be, you know, lead the charge within an organization on actually implementing those things. It's usually the business leaders that will fund those or say, yeah, that's the thing that we need to do. And unfortunately, as I said, most organizations don't have a designer in C-suite, which is really unfortunate. So all that being said, at Mighty Bytes, we've moved to talking about this in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, how is this corporate digital responsibility concept being adapted throughout the world? Slowly, you know, similar to digital sustainability, it's probably a few years behind that, you know. I think that people are interested. They see the stories about all these kind of unintended consequences that occur from digital products and services. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of examples of those. And so people are interested in figuring out a framework that they can apply to their own organization. And so I worked with these researchers and academics and authors in Europe to come up with a definition, which is at the CDR manifesto. And, you know, there's seven kind of core CDR principles. It's very similar to kind of a CSR framework, but it's very specific to digital. Again, anybody, any organization can adopt it and implement it, but it's still pretty new to most organizations, I'd say. And so the question is, how did you apply it at Mighty Buy? For us, it just it was about taking what we were already doing kind of in, in environmental services and applying it to social and governance as well. As a B Corp, it was easy to do because we were already looking at our stakeholders as dedicated 
partners whose needs we were trying to work on and meet as we ran our own business. What it meant is we created things like an impact business model. So many companies, they will make money and then they'll maybe they'll give a free product to a needy community or they'll donate a portion of their proceeds at the end of the year to you know, nonprofits and stuff like that. Whereas an impact business model actually allows you and enables you to create impact with the way that you make money. So for us, while sustainable digital design was kind of this thing that we did you know, here and there, we made it official and we made policies around sustainability, accessibility, and education. And so we have three impact business models for Mighty Bytes, where the work that we do you know, allows us to make money and also creates positive social and environmental impact. And that, that's a part of, that's just now built into our business model. Okay, and that's something different than the triple bottom line, the financial, but also environmental and societal. Is it something that is operated by the CDR or is it something different? Because I know that the CSR, they try to create this, you know, there's two missing bottom lines because you, you mentioned like, you know, how business are run, mostly via financial bottom line. I mean, and we tend now with the carbon accounting to have a bit of an environmental bottom line as well. And for the societal bottom line, I think we are still chasing it. But is it related or is it something different when you build a impact business model? It's, it's all related. And I think that's the most important thing for, for people and organizations to remember is that this stuff is all related. You can have the most carbon efficient website, but if it's promoting tobacco use and it's not paying, and the people who own it are not paying a living wage, you know, there's all these kind of related intersectional issues. There's a really amazing book called The Intersectional Environmentalist by Leah Thomas. I highly advocate for anybody who's into this stuff to read it because it really talks about how all of these issues are related to one another and how they all impact one another. And so it's not just about carbon accounting, it's about carbon accounting and access to information and you know broadband access and all of these other accessibility and these other kind of related topics. All of them need to be considered hand in hand with one another. And that's why I like DDR framework, because it does that. Well, we will put the reference in the show notes, definitely. Well, that was really interesting. And did you manage to interact with clients using already the CDA principles or are they still a bit in research phase rather than operational phase? We have incorporated some of them in our own client work and that kind of thing. There is definitely some research going on. I think there's a call or a need for really great case studies. You know, it's one thing for a small digital agency like Mighty Bytes to say, hey, we're using these principles to operate our business. But, you know, once you get a larger company or many larger companies, you know, creating case studies and, and showing about the actual difference that they're making with this approach, that that's going to inspire more people to do the same. Yeah. And really questioning the purpose of what we do. You know, I don't know if I've mentioned it already, but I had a meeting with Pete Markiewicz to prepare our discussion. That was mind-blowing. Oh, cool. He's something else. He's great. Uh, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was fascinating homeworks that I did, uh, both with him and uh, with uh, James Christie. And I have to tell you a side story he told me. I don't know if you knew that, but he delivers lectures on retro-futuring, where he analyzes how in the past we envisioned the future, especially in pop culture. That's crazy because what is striking is that it is an always energy-intensive and wasteful future that we have tended to foresee. Not a circular economy, but like more a millefeuille of old technologies decomposing while being replaced by new ones, you know, like a bit like in Blade Runner. And thinking about it, it has led me to the question of how much, as responsible technologists, we should question both the purpose of what we do, and this is exactly what 
both the B Corp movement and the corporate digital responsibility movements are doing. But, you know, at some point, there is really the question of what being a purposeful actually means. The very question of what is a desirable future, don't you think? Right. And that answer changes for every kind of stakeholder group. I think that's one of the things that I like about the uh, B Corp movement is that it helps you more broadly about the impact of your decisions. You know, if you're if you're based in a community and you make one certain kind of a decision in the name of being purposeful, are there unintended consequences to that? Are you keeping, you know, community-based stakeholders in mind? Are you taking your workers into consideration? You know, we live mostly in the B2B space in B2B sales and marketing. Oftentimes the idea of paying a living wage is not a thing that's considered or talked about, you know, in sales conversations at all. You know, people really oftentimes when they're hiring services like ours, they just want the lowest price. You know, that happens in products, consumer product categories as well. And and ultimately, if, you know, someone comes in and can undercut another person, but they're not paying their people a living wage, you know, they can talk all the purpose talk that they want, but at the end of the day, they're not really, you know, advancing a good, you know, more sustainable, responsible future. I think that question really depends on who you're asking. Fair point. Okay, so being mindful of your time, I know it's uh, still early in the US, but you've got a very long day of work (laughs) ahead of you. (laughs) So I think it's time to close the podcast and to thank you for this amazing discussion we had. However, I would love to ask you the two final questions. The first one being, what makes you optimistic about our path towards a greener digital world today? The, the number of people around the world that are regularly getting in touch with me and, and regularly getting excited about sustainable design and sustainable digital sustainability is very exciting, really great to see people from all around the world get excited about this concept and then go to their day job and, and start applying these things on the day-to-day products that they build and stuff. To me, that's very exciting. You feel a bit less like a trailblazer now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I know you already shared uh, tons of references in books, etc. Do you have like one final recommendation to learn more about the different topics you discussed today? Sure. I mean, I'll give a shameless plug to our own blog because Mighty Bytes writes about this stuff all the time. If you want to go uh, find out about corporate digital responsibility, go to corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Rob Price is based in the UK and he does an amazing job covering this topic from all kinds of different angles. Be the change, uh, com, the letter B, the change.com is the storytelling platform for the B Corp community. So if you're really interested in finding out about how other businesses are doing this, digital or otherwise, you know, go and there's just tons and tons of stories about how people are using business as a force for good. And that's to me really inspiring. You know, we created uh, with Whole Grain Digital, we created sustainablewebdesign.org as an open resource for digital sustainability principles. And I think that's probably a good stopping point right there. We'll put all these resources in the show notes. So thanks a lot, Tim. That was a great conversation. I was a bit intimidated at first, I must admit. You know, you put your, your interview subjects at ease and I think that's really important. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. That's really what I'm trying to achieve. And of course, to have the listeners and uh, an ins- insightful moment, I would say. Yeah, I hope so. We talked about a lot of good stuff here, and I hope you know people can find a little nugget or two out of all of it. I'm confident they will. So, Tim, thanks a lot for making this happen. You can always come on the show. You're always welcome. And once again, thanks for joining. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. 
And that's it. Thank you for listening to Green.io. Make sure to subscribe to the mailing list to stay up to date on new episodes. If you enjoyed this one, feel free to share it on social media or with any friends or colleagues who could benefit from it. As a non-profit podcast, we rely on you to spread the word. Last but not the least, if you know someone who would make a great guest, please send them my way so that we can make our digital world greener one bite at a time.